Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen launches an eight-part series of interviews exploring the roots and history of attachment theory. In her first two episodes, Karen welcomes journalist and author Deborah Bloom to the show for part one of their two-part conversation on her book, Love on Goon Park, all about Harry Harlow. Part two will be released on Tuesday, May 11th. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I am your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, joining you from Chaddock for another episode. And guys and gals, I really have someone exciting I am going to be interviewing today. I know I say this every time, but I mean, this is just just really, really a wonderful opportunity. Um, I want to tell you a little bit about who my guest is going to be for today. I am going to be talking with Deborah Blum, who is the author of Love at Goon Park, among many other books. Um, and she is a Pulitzer Prize winning science writer. She won the Pulitzer Prize for her writing about monkeys for one of her books that she wrote before Love at Goon Park, which was called Monkey Wars. And I want to just tell you a little bit about her background before she joins us. Uh, she traveled around the world and grew up with parents who were scientists and had originally thought she wanted to be a scientist herself. And in 1972, she started college at Florida State University, thinking she would be a chemistry major. She loves chemistry, is still fascinated by chemistry, but by her own admission, she says that she discovered that a laboratory is no place for an absent-minded klutz. She decided to change majors the day she set her braid on fire in a Bunsen burner and her lab instructor said, do you smell smoke? So she then transferred to the University of Georgia and graduated in 1976 with a major in journalism, a double minor in political science and anthropology. She worked for various different newspapers um, in Georgia, including the Times. Um, she eventually uh, headed to... University of Wisconsin to study science writing and journalism and to continue her uh, education. Then after graduating from there, she became a science writer for McClatchy newspapers in California. Uh, she's just done so many things. I mean, she has gone to Alaska to write about glaciers, um, gone to Hawaii, um, and, and, and done different uh, writing um, about things there. She also has written a book called Sex on the Brain that was published in 1997, in addition to the books that I have already mentioned. She later went on the, the book Love at Goon Park, which I mentioned a second ago, came out in 2002. And she's also written um, Ghost Hunters, The Search for Scientific Proof of Life After Death. That came out in 2006. She wrote The Poisoner's Handbook, 
She also has more recently written a new book about poisonous food and food politics that came out in 2018 by Penguin Press. This woman has just written a tremendous amount of fascinating science literature. And so I am just thrilled to have her on the podcast today. And when she gets on, I'll I'll tell you a little bit about our first meeting of each other. So stay tuned. All right, everybody, I am here with Deborah Blum. Deborah, I forgot. I always ask my guests how to say their name. Did I say it correctly? Perfectly. Oh, wonderful. Okay. So, and as I promised, uh, she is here with us. And so, Deborah, I I got out Love at Goon Park, which is the book we're going to talk about today. Although I'm eager for listeners to hear about some of your other work. And I thought, when when was this? You know, you came and spoke at the Attach Conference, and I looked back and it was September 29th, 2003. So I had the book Love at Game Park. I like, um, I'm holding it right here now. I know our listeners can't see, but you can see I ran up afterwards and got you to sign it. I was so impressed with your talk there and so impressed with the book. Um, it's just such an incredible book. So first, you know, maybe just share with listeners, like why you wanted to write about Harry Harlow and how that fat fits in with, with the kind of writing that you do and, and how you ever even got the whole idea. Oh, that's, I mean, it's such a good question and, and I hope it's an interesting story. So The first book I did was called The Monkey Wars, and it was a look at ethical issues in primate research. It actually grew out of a newspaper series I did for the Sacramento Bee that won a Pulitzer Prize, which is uh, one of the easiest ways to get an agent in a book contract, actually. Yes, go out and win yourself a Pulitzer Prize. (laughs) (laughs) Totally, you know, a quick step into a book, which turned out to be a whole lot more work than I had expected. But when I did that book, I did one chapter centered on uh, the primary character in Lovett Goon Park, Harry Frederick Harlow, who was a psychologist at the University of Wisconsin. And I really was looking at why he was such a poster child for the animal rights movement. That chapter really looked at why do people hate animal research, right? And Because some of Harlow's experiments, and we can come back to them. Yes. Uh, raised some very troubling ethical issues about how we uh, handle animals in our care. So I wrote that book and people who knew and loved Harlow, and I have to say, I've written six books. Of all the books I've done, the person who inspired the strongest feelings from absolutely everyone was Harry Harlow. People adored him, people hated him. No one had a uh, a neutral feeling about him. And after Monkey Wars came out, people who loved Harlow just, you know, wrote me, we hate you, we hate your book, right? We're never gonna speak to you again. We're so angry at the way you did this, right? And, 
and at the same time, my editor at Oxford said to me, well, the most interesting person in your book is Harry Harlow. Do you want to write a book about him? And I said, absolutely not. Right. <laughs> I've already stirred up enough trouble with him. I don't know who's going to talk to me. And also, I guess I thought at the time, um, you know, and I don't want to be labeled as a monkey journalist. And so right. I did, but I did do a book that had to do with biology and behavior that came next, which was um, gender biology, uh, sex on the brain. And and this that was, was in between Monkey Wars and, and the Harlow book. That's right. Book, and Love yeah. It Good Part. Yes. And so and that really led me to spend some years just writing about biology of behavior and eventually and also doing it for magazines. And eventually I pitched a two-part series to Mother Jones on neglected children. I, I was interested in a journalist in writing about neglected children because of all the forms of abuse to, uh, to children, uh, that's the one that we as journalists cover the least. It has no drama, right? right. Sexual abuse has drama, physical abuse has drama, but uh, neglect is just sort of this everyday non-dramatic experience. And yet, I had been looking at uh, research that showed that it actually had some of the most profound effects on development, even more than physical or sexual abuse. This profound trauma traumatic effect on children of being ignored by their parents, right? Their mothers never ignored them. They didn't smile at them. The children, you know, didn't learn to smile back. And um, they, uh, and then when the children went to school, nobody liked them because they didn't smile back. You know, like it was like this spiraling series of effects. Yes. And so I wrote this two part series, but when I was doing it and looking both at those profound effects and the way we try to deal with them, I thought, well, that's Harry Harlow's work, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it was just as clear to me as something in a big neon sign over a ballpark that I was really looking at what Harry Harlow had studied all those years ago. Mm -hmm. So I went back to my agent and I said, you know, I never thought I'd say this, <laughs> but it's, you know, Harlow really to me was the psychologist that was, profoundly influential in, in thinking about relationships, right? Mm -hmm. As much as really any psychologist of the early and mid 20th century. Yes. And I'm interested in that, the, you know, the, the nature of love, the nature of relationships, the nature of love was the title of Harry's, I always call him Harry, by the way, <laughs> Harry's famous uh, uh, paper that he gave or talk that he gave uh, to the APA when he became president. And, um, and I'm going to poke around and I started poking around and I, and I was at the university of Wisconsin at the time. And I was able, because I was there to start mending some relationships, right. Meeting with people <laughs> who didn't like me um, and working out agreements in which they would talk to me, right. All of the above to the point that I thought, yeah, I could actually do this and, and I could do it in the way I want, which is as a journalist. And this has been true in every book I do, have done since it's the person, it's the story behind them. Right. So love at Goom Park is a biography of Harry Frederick Harlow, but it's a biography of the idea of love matters. 
the biography of that idea in a sense, right? So those yes. are the two books of that book. And that yes. was the story I wanted to write. And once I had that fixed in my head, off I went. I mean, it was still an adventure. Yes. <laughs> together all the different pieces of it. Yes. But that was the story I knew I wanted to write. Yes. And, you know, you're so known for your meticulous research and, you know, all of that comes through in the book. And um, just, and I also want to quickly draw attention um, to, you know, I want to tell the listeners why it's called Love at Goon Park, um, Harry Harlow and the Science of Affection is the subtitle. Tell our listeners the fun reason it's called Love at Goon Park. I know, I just love that to this day. So when Harry Harlow was at the Department of Psychology at the University of Wisconsin, it was in this old kind of creaky building. Uh, if you know the UW campus, it's on Lake Mendota. And if you know the UW campus today, it's actually the undergrad library now. But the physical address of that building was 600 North Park Street. And if you can visualize 600 in, people who would write that address and really scrawl it, it would look like goon, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of 600 in. And the department itself was such a dysfunctional department, right? <laughs> in which so many people there couldn't stand each other. I oh mean, my gosh. Psychologist Carl Rogers actually refused to go to faculty meetings when he was there and would just, I love this story so much, leave a tape recorder right in front of his chair that would be played what he had to say to all the people he didn't like in the room. That the psychologists themselves started calling it Love at Goon, call, started, they started calling it Goon Park, right? As oh my name. gosh, because of all of these clashing personalities. That's exactly right. And even the guy with the unconditional positive regard guy couldn't tolerate <laughs> exactly right when you get down into and i did talk to a lot of people who were in the department i mean i'm an over researcher but people who were there at the time and students there at the time and you know uh, and just a, and everyone said the same thing, right? It was just such a hostile, unfriendly place. And so when I was talking to my editor about it, and, and I had really thought that we were going to call the book The Nature of Love, uh, which, you know, was sort of to me the central idea, what is yes. the nature of love, and which I loved as a title, actually. But she liked the, because it's a narrative story, right? She really liked that idea of love in unexpected places, right? Which Love at Goom Park suggests, the unlikely nature yes. of coming out of here. Um, and and I should add that I, I have, I think I mentioned to you this to you earlier, but um, I have a conversation scheduled with a couple of screenwriters who are working on a film adaptation of the book, even now, right? Um, and I said something like, oh, and I wanted to call it Nature of Love. And he's like, oh, no. <laughs> I know, I agree. <laughs> like the only person in the world who likes that title. Everyone goes, love it, Goomba perfectly catches the improbable nature of the story. That's what I was just going to say. And now that title, it just sticks with me and I love it so much. Did you come <laughs> to love it or did you always feel come to love it? Right. Okay, 
sometimes, you know, when I get to the part of the story where, because I love the way, and I, and this is leaping way ahead. I mean, Harry had decided on the title, the nature of love for his, the pay, the speech he was going to give to the, you know, APA. Yes. He'd even written the paper. And there's this great point in the book where he goes to one of the grad students he's working with and he says, I've got the title for the greatest paper ever given in the history of psychology. Go find me the data for it. (laughs) And which is also very, very Yes, loved that moment so much, but I, you know, I'm such a, like a geeky little nerd about stuff. I'm probably the only person who loves that moment as much as. Oh no, no, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. And I, I, I think that title, I just, was always so enchanted by it when when I learned, you know, kind of what it meant. And now hearing even more of the backstory on it um, is, 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 is even, you know, all the more fascinating. Um, so so now you were living in Wisconsin. I was. I was and, a professor there. Okay. And you were, so you were a professor at the, the actual university. Yeah, I was a professor in the School of Journalism and Mass Communication. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I wasn't in the Department of Psychology. Yeah, wow. And, and then you also were able to get his family to share a lot of information with you, too. I was really lucky there in a couple of family members, right? So one of the big uh, sort of in the way that, you know, putting a book together like this is a mosaic of, you know, primary sources and secondary sources and all the research papers and all the interviews. And Harry's longtime assistant, Helen Leroy, who is actually a really wonderful person, but who really was angry about monkey wars. Uh, I actually was able to broker a detente with her uh, with the help of the primate librarian there <laughs> who liked me. And um, and so she gave me contact information for his kids. She had stayed in touch with all of them. Okay. And she said, I'm not going to tell them to talk to you, right? <laughs> you are welcome to, you know, reach out. And I did. I wrote to, he had four kids, two by his first wife and two by his second. And I got in touch with all of them. And three of the four agreed to talk to me. And his uh, youngest son, Jonathan Harlow, uh, by his second marriage, wouldn't talk to me at all. He had never, never got over the book. But I talked to his sister, Pamela, and I talked to both kids by the first marriage, um, and all of them were hugely helpful. But the one who was phenomenally, amazingly helpful was his oldest son, uh, Bob Israel. And uh, as I relate in the book, Harry was born Harry Frederick Israel. Yes. And he uh, changed his name to Harlow because his major professor, Louis Terman, basically plagued him into doing that because when Stanford was trying to get Harry a job uh, because of the uh, very strong anti-Semitic culture that ran through the United States, more so at that time, I hope, um, he couldn't, that people would just say, I couldn't possibly hire someone with the name of Israel. And so and meanwhile, he wasn't Jewish. He, wasn't, he was Protestant, right? Long yeah. time ago. So that's, an, that, that's another interesting twist to it. It is. It was just the family name, but, her, but Terman kept on him. Even, even though the university of Wisconsin had hired him as Harry Israel, 
Kerman just said to him, you're never going to succeed with that name. And so he changed it to um, Harlow, which was his father's middle name, um, and became Harry Harlow. But Bob, his oldest kid, took back the family name of Israel. That's a long, complicated story. And and Bob is is an evangelical preacher. And so he told me that when I contacted him, I called him up in, in Oregon where he lived then. And, uh, and he and his wife prayed about it and they decided to let me in. And so I flew out to Oregon um, and he, you know, couldn't have been kinder. Uh, and as I asked the millions and millions of questions, I'm sure it felt that way that I wanted yes. to ask. But also he had, you know, his father's unpublished journal and his father's artwork and reams. Uh, Harry would like to write dog roll poetry and he would wander around. He would mail it to friends and leave it on his student's desk. And he had like hundreds of pages of his poetry and he let me copy everything. So I, so he like gave me this treasure trove of insight both into the family and into the man and and for the, anyone who is ever interested in researching Harry, Harry Harlow, I want to say now that I have donated all of those materials to the University of Wisconsin archives. And so um, I did a, you know, a deed of gift, actually, yes. so, because I wanted them to be more available, right? Yes. I didn't want them in my garage. I wanted other people who got interested and wanted, you know, to actually look at yes. the Yes, yes. I would so be one of those people, you know, I. I lived in I live in South Carolina now, but I lived in Illinois 20 years, and I would have this fantasy of going to University of Wisconsin for like a family vacation. <laughs> <And just laughs> nobody else was getting on board with it, Deborah. But I just like wanted to see it and wanted to experience it, a walk where he walked, and 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 all of that. I mean, this also seems like a good moment for you to share a little bit about the complexities of the man that he was that you write about. He, yeah, I mean, he was really fascinating. And, and I will tell you as a book author um, that that's a gift to the author, right? And when I was working on the, what I, the, the Harry book, my kids still call it the Harry book, when I, but when I was working on Love at Goom Park, uh, I was talking to a friend who was working on a biography um, uh, J.C. Licklider, who was like one of the pioneers with a personal computer, and he said he had this big problem because the guy was so nice. He was such a teddy bear. Everyone loved him. There was no drama in the story, and I'm like, I don't have that problem. No, you, don't have- <laughs> so- you got drama with Harry. You got drama in the lab. You got drama everywhere. Harry, <laughs> I mean, I actually think a couple of things about it. I think he was brilliant. You know, his ability to, um, uh, uh, you know, make use of where he was. So I talk, talk in, uh, the book about the fact that when he went to, um, uh, Wisconsin, that he had no real animal laboratory and he eventually ended up going down to the zoo to watch the primates there and, and all the fantastical ways that he built one of the first primate laboratories in the country by stealing material from other, you know, <laughs> construction sites on campus and all of, 
you know, employing his students. I mean, it, it's kind of an amazing. So story. industrious. Yes, he was so determined. But he also recognized early on, before he got into uh, the, the, you know, the science of relationship, he was really famous as the developer of something called the Wisconsin General Test Apparatus. He recognized the intelligence of monkeys and their problem-solving abilities very early. I mean, one of the first people to do that. He had an intuitive brilliance at these kind of insights of behavior. I really believe that. And, and it was followed by a couple of other things um, that would make it made him both successful in what he did. And I think probably very difficult to live with, you know, he could, he completely obsessed about the research. He was what I th think of. And there was actually a quote from one of his students in the book saying that he was a blue collar scientist. He liked a good street fight right? Not everyone does. I, lo I love that part that you write about him. Keep talking about yeah. that. You know, I mean, he liked taking on the uh, paradigms of the field and trying to not knock them down if he thought they didn't make sense. And, 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 you know, getting into these kind of combats over positions that he would take. So there's like, when he first used, started using the word love, for instance, it, it just wasn't used in psychology. It, that was so, you know, fluffy and sentimental and non-scientific. And so, you know, real psychologists didn't say love. They said proximity, right? And they yes. had actual formulas for the calculation of the proximate relationship. I mean, and there's this wonderful line where he finally says to someone, well, maybe all you've ever known in your life is proximity, but, uh, you know, I thank God I've known more. And he really yes. would get in, which is right, right? He would really... Right people's faces about it. Um, and he was willing to, to do something that was not uh, admired by many scientists, which was to talk about it directly to the public, right? He came, he came up in a period where real scientists only um, wrote in scientific journals and shared their wisdom with each other. And he didn't do that. He went out and talked to women's clubs and, um, you know, women's magazines and, you know, anyone, because he thought it was, because he thought this was people's everyday life. And he had a gift I think, so I'm talking about what I think of as some of his strengths for yes. saying science should matter in people's everyday life. You know, we're not yes. all about you, the abstract. And if you I'm, have that gift. You well, have that, that gift. I, I think, I mean, that's sort of a guiding principle for me as a science journalist, the science of our everyday life and, and yes. making people see as you know, I sometimes think people get scared off, you know, seeing that when they're in high school, but trying to make them recognize, you know, how important and useful science is in their everyday life. Um, and so, you know, he had all of those gifts and he had this rare primate laboratory and he was a really, um, you know, encouraged cre creativity among the people who work for them. A lot of the students who work for him talked about the fact that, you know, he would let you experiment, you know, any idea you had, he was willing to let you give it a chance, right? He would also tell you to knock it off if it clearly didn't work, but he, you know, enabled that kind of thing. So the, the intelligence testing had made him really famous, but it had also made him appreciate, you know, what complicated animals they were. And they can begin to realize, because they had a lot of monkeys, um, that these monkeys who were isolated, because that was sort of the... Um, uh, hygienic principle of the time right. really didn't do well. 
And they also started observing one other thing, which is that these little monkeys, when you put them in cages and you put in like a diaper or some kind of small blanket in there, uh, became attached to the fabric, right? Yes. I mean, physically attached to that sense of softness and touch. Yes. And so all of that fit with um, this growing awareness on the human side, you know, going back to, uh, I mean, predating Bulby to some extent, yes. but going back to um, if we go to attachments theory, the work that Bulby was starting to do, looking at that sort of solid found the necessary foundation that we get from those first relationships, and then yes. Bulby yes. and Mary Ainsworth together, you know, really showing how a, pra- a profound developmental and ripple effect it had in their lives, and Bulby, yes. as you know, as he started to put this forward ran into the same kind of buzz saws that harlow ran into love please yes Yes. he recognized very early harlow because they had started to see this attachment of the baby monkeys in the way they were rearing baby monkeys in his primate lab Mm -hmm. cloth came up with this experiment just to look at the importance of what he taught called contact comfort i can yes yes and that's the famous cloth mother versus wire mother very simple experiment bobby got that i mean in a nanosecond right yes looked at the work that harlow was doing and he recognized that it quantified because this is you know work that is built very database you can't say as people would with some of the human experiments well you know they didn't they had poor genetics right or right. they you right. know didn't have whatever i mean these were monkeys that were raised in very similar circumstances in a very controlled environment and, and you'll see people going back to that nature of love, which was the first real demonstration of the sort of power of touch, the cloth mother experiment. Yeah. See, his, his students said, Harry made us like, they had to repeat and repeat and repeat, right? He wanted every, he knew what a bombshell this was going to be. And yes. it's easy for us to sit here on this side of, you know, the Harlow, Bowlby, Ainsworth, uh, and, and all and many of their very good peers, that kind of revolution, yes. and say, yes. what were those other guys thinking? Yeah. So, so the other thing I want to say quickly that got me interested when I started doing the research is, you know, I started saying to myself, well, why why would this be a revolution? Doesn't everyone know? You know that this is an important relationship, and the mother should hold their children, and all of these things. And I had two kids when I was working on this book, yes. so I was fairly cued into this um, and thinking about it. Uh, and I will say, the book, you know, was for me it made me think a lot about how I wanted to be a parent too. When you go back into, you know, both Victorian science and, and the early 20th century, sort of deterministic period of psychology, John Watson, B.J. Skinner, right, Luther, and then on um, more of the child-rearing side, Luther Holt, and again, John Watson, um, you know, you see this real push to say to parents, um, oh, no, 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 right? You do not. Yes, it's, it's, you know, and um, I do, I'm, I'm eager to even talk a little more about some of your quotes from those men. Sure. 
and their ideas for child rearing. I, I, I can't wait to continue this discussion. Um, I want to, you know, tell listeners that we're going to be having a part two to this, that um, where we're going to be continuing this discussion. And it has just been beyond what I even imagined so far, Deborah. This is just so fun. So everybody, I want you to join us next week as we continue this discussion. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. Please follow our site, tkcchattock.org, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean for future podcasts. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to tkcchattock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.